Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Port City Church. So glad and thankful to be here. Um, I'm excited uh, for this series that we're in. We've been uh, going through a series called Empowered looking at like how God has empowered his people um, for his purposes and his mission um, and a life with him, not just for him. Um, I want to start this way. Uh, Do you remember when the first iPad came out? I know we're several generations in at this point, but do you remember when when it first came out? I remember that commercial, and there was that British guy in the background. He was talking in the, you know, and they were showing the device, and he kept using the word magic. Magic, magic, magic. It's like magic. Anyway, to describe it, it was so cool. Kind of seeing this thing, uh, like, you know, what it was doing and what it was like for the very first time. I think it was like circa 2010, in case you were wondering. Um, It did seem like magic. It seemed to kind of just work. Um, It was like, it was in like seeing this device that I, I remember thinking to myself, huh, paper is finished. It's done. It's over. Yeah, here I am with my paper. Uh, But, uh, it actually was not the case, in case you're wondering, but, but I just remember in this moment, it, was just, it just worked like magic. It was like all the pieces that Apple had been setting in place, like dominoes for like 10 years even, um, had just been, it just fell. And you're like, oh, that's what you've been doing. 
That's what you've been putting together. The iPad. Anyway, it was incredible. Whether it be like the iPhone itself or the um, App Store, all this stuff culminated in this one magical moment that was uh, the iPad. It's not often in, modern, in the modern world that many of us are amazed like that. See, we're surrounded by modern marbles that are simply everyday to us. Whether it be a smartphone, an iPad, video itself, wireless internet, or ballpoint pens, if you really think about it. We don't notice these things anymore. They are just normative to us. Today's text that we're going to be in Acts 3, it's, it, it's affected by our modernness, our modern expectations. If we live in a world of marvels, but when, you know, we live in this world of marvels all around us, but when something even more miraculous, more marvelous, might I say, than, than what we can achieve ourselves happens, it's interesting, but we react in unexpected ways as a culture, as, as, a, as a society. We're in, a, you know, we're in this mini-series, and we're looking at what it means to be empowered. So today, I want us to help us see anew that this spirit empowerment available to the church, it's here right in Acts 3, if we can just see clearly through our modern eyes. I want to help us do that. The big idea today is that I want to help us identify our modern, postmodern biases when it comes to the miraculous and how we are to navigate the supernatural in our life with God. Okay? So we're going to take this text in three turns, essentially. Just the act, the audience, and the announcement. So let's go. The act. If we're not careful, we'll miss exactly what happened in this text. We'll just glaze over and say, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I know exactly what happened. But we could even miss the significance of it, of what just really just happened. So let's kind of get their facts straight. Let's kind of slow down. Let's read. Let's look carefully and answer some questions, okay? What exactly happened? Let's look at the man, the miracle, and then the method of that miracle, okay? So first, the man. This man was a man lame from birth, Okay? A man lame from, it said in verse 2, a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms for those entering the temple. See, he was laid, daily laid at, by the temple to get alms to help support himself, right? This man's lameness shaped his whole life, including his daily routine. See, every day somebody had to come pick him up, carry him over there, and lay him down. He didn't get there by himself. Right? This, this was not a one-off leg issue. He didn't have an accident. He was born this way. This was his life. Something was wrong with his feet and ankles. Look at verse 7. We know this by what was actually healed. He, he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. All right? The next thing we notice about him is the people around town, they knew him. They knew him. It says, verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. See, this wasn't some random guy. It was someone everyone knew. It was the guy they all saw every day, probably, if they went to the temple, or at least once a week. Many of them probably had even given him money. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. Because they felt sorry for him. Or maybe they were trying to earn some God's favor or just do the good thing. He was identifiable. He was known. All right, so that's the man. That's who this is. Now, let's look at the miracle closely. It says this in verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. His feet and ankles instantly were made well. That's what happened here. It didn't take a while. It didn't take a few days. It didn't even take a few moments. It happens instantly. The short time span indicates something unusual has happened. This isn't normal, okay? What was not working was now working perfectly. Tendon issues, deformity, nerve issues, or whatever the problem, it was fixed like that. The man didn't hobble up. He leapt. He probably had never leapt before. Think about that. Based on what uh, on this from birth detail that we get, the man's strong reaction to getting up from was probably the fact that he had never done any of these things before. He had never walked like this. He had never leapt. This is all first-time stuff. It's kind of like, kind of give you a parallel, it's kind of like that moment when 
when a, a colorblind person puts on those glasses, you know, they got these glasses that they can put on, and they, for the very first time, they can see color. They can see the right colors, or they see colors they've never seen before. And oftentimes in these videos, if you ever YouTube this or whatever, or watch a new girl, they cry. <laughs> they, they have a, a strong emotional reaction because something for the very first time has happened. It's happened in an instant. That is what's happening here. Now, let's look at the method. The method was this. Peter spoke in the name of Jesus, and it was fixed. Notice how simple these things were done. There was no special dance, right? There was none of that. There was no grand gestures, right? Peter simply spoke in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a person, right? Rise up and walk. And then the most odd thing happened. The man actually obeyed. He actually, all right, you know, he grabbed Peter's hand, gave it a try. And the text says that in the process of getting up, he was healed. So these are the facts of what the text says and claims. Now, a text like this, it hits us as modern, postmodern people or minds in a different way. So let's look at some cultural, this cultural moment. It kind of affects our ability to see uh, clearly and like really reflect on this text and, and see the significance of what's being said. Because our modern world does something to us. It jades us. It, it kind of clouds us from being able to see what exactly God has done in this moment. So let's think through some possible like approaches that might be taken by us or maybe our culture at large and see uh, and kind of go through those and then we'll, we'll kind of grab some categories about how to do that. So let's look at this. The first one, this is a possible approach to this text as a reader, as a modern reader. You could just say like, man, that's a lie. It didn't happen. The story is just simply not true. Why? Because things like this, just, they don't get well. It's a fantasy, like to think otherwise. There's no such thing as magic, right? So therefore, it must have been made up, just like fairy tales. It, it would be nice. It would be good. It would be great. But it just can't happen. In fact, this might have even been made up just to reinforce the whole Jesus thing, right? But the proof, that there, where, where, does, where does a position like that get its basis? It's simply like this. It, it, experience. It doesn't happen. I've never seen it happen. Therefore, it probably can't happen. But the underlying reasons for such a position, such thinking this way, culturally speaking, is that you start with the fact that the universe is all there is. All, that, all that's here is, is the physical stuff of this world, matter, these things. There's nothing outside of nature, time, and space. This is it. And in that world, in that scheme, that can't happen. I get that. Let's go to another one. We'll come back to these. Uh, the next one, maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, man, okay, maybe I think maybe it could happen, but I think this was a trick. I think it was a trick. I think it was a con. This guy was a plant of some sort. He was there to stage the whole thing. Maybe it was just an illusion. Maybe it's just like, a, again, try to build a narrative around, like, look, they did it. They did it. See? But, you know, the proof of this would be kind of like, well, it's experience again. It's kind of like this idea that it sounds like a con. It sounds too good to be true. You know, and everything kind of has angle, right? What's the, what's the underlying story? Maybe, maybe someone, maybe you, maybe someone gets to this kind of place because more than likely, you know, the reasons for the first objection. But also, maybe you've been duped before and you're like, man, I don't want to be taken in. Did this really happen? Like, I, I'm just almost like, I'm a little afraid to be taken in by this. It's too good to be true. And many times, things that sound too good to be true, like say, tell, somebody telling you something that's free when you're like, man, is it really free? You know, it's like, that's our modern spot. You may not verbalize that. You may feel not, like you can't say it that way, but in your deep soul of your mind and your heart, all those things, you kind of go like, man, did that really happen? Another way to deal with this, and this one's very tricky. This is very elusive and, and dangerous in some ways. This, is, this was just a spiritual allegory. This didn't actually happen, but it doesn't have to be true to hold value and meaning. It's a story that teaches a spiritual truth and lesson. You know, hey, we're modern people. You know, you can't expect me to actually think this happened. This is a way to kind of navigate the cultural um, objections to miracles, but maintain some kind of value to the text itself. You know, what would lead a person to, to such a position like that? I think it's kind of like a wrestling of cultural experiences and a desire to kind of fit the Bible, religious things in all of it. Trying to reconcile those things. Understandable. But I also think maybe, 
just maybe, there's some cultural pressures that I want to be Christian, but I don't want to seem like an idiot to my friends and my peers and my family. I'm a scientist, for crying out loud. I'm a doctor, you know? But maybe, maybe there's, a, there's another way. Let's keep going, and then we'll come back and circle back to these. Maybe you're just like, man, I don't know what to do with it. That's fair. Maybe you're, maybe you're hearing you're just like, I don't know what to do with this story like this. You can see why people would be skeptical about it. Yeah, you can say like, hey, man, I, I can kind of see why you would like, yeah, that don't usually happen. I, I, can, I can agree where you're, you're objecting to that. You may want to believe what the Bible says, but you have a hard time reconciling to the modern world around you, right? You're not prepared to say it didn't happen, but you're like, I just still don't know what to do. Maybe I can just do nothing with this text and kind of move on. And, you know, all, that, you know, all the other Jesus stuff about forgiveness and stuff, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, if I just give enough fruit of the Spirit, maybe they'll forget about it kind of idea. But maybe the underlying position for this is if I ask too many questions, of the Christian faith, it won't hold up, and I'll have to deal with that, and I don't want to deal. I don't want to argue with anybody. This can be an interpersonal thing. I don't want to have it in, I don't, I don't, it doesn't have to have an impact on my public life. I can just kind of, eh, not deal. So these are some kind of things, but how do we navigate the, this cultural experience, this cultural moment that we're in, and, and some of those things, all of us at one time or another are currently um, think, feel when we, we kind of get into uh, a text like this. Well, you don't have to have all the answers. Pressure's off because I certainly don't. Um, you don't have to have arguments with people. In fact, I kind of discourage that. I actually discourage argue, outright arguing with people, okay? Yet we must have the categories and tools to theologically, philosophically, and practically deal with things like this. So the first question we need to ask is, are things like this possible? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Right? I can appreciate, I really can. I really can appreciate the person who says the story's a lie because miracles can't, cannot happen. That's consistent. If you really don't think there's anything outside of what, what material matter, that makes sense. But um, the thing is, is like, yet the underlying something is that miracles cannot happen. And I have to question, like, say, well, why can't they? Why can't they? The line of thinking usually goes kind of like this. Because there's nothing outside of nature, okay? There is no such thing as the supernatural. That is supra, meaning outside of the natural, right? Now, if that is where you are today or you know someone's like that, I don't, I don't really hope to completely convince you or them of that otherwise today, right? But I at least want to point some things out to maybe, like, at least give, give, give me a hearing, if you will. If nature is all there is, then we shouldn't be able to find anything that's real yet not physical, okay? But there is something that is so basic to all of us, to our everyday lives, that's not physical. Human thought, reason, logic, it's not physical, but yet it's very real, and it shapes the world that we live in. So let me give you an example. This is more concrete. Take math, for example. We all had to take it. Some of us have a privilege in starting Monday. Um, but math is very real, and it describes the physical world. It can even be used to create things and manipulate the physical world. But what is math? <laughs> it's not physical. It's ideas, actually. It's not, it's, it's not contained to my mind alone or yours, but it's a shared knowledge, yet it only works a certain way. See, the measurement of a thing is not the thing itself. If you measured my height right now, you'd find I'm around 5'9 on a good day. Yet, that is math making sense of, the physical, of my physical body. But yet, it's not my body. It's not. It's just a, it's an explanation of it. It's a, a measurement. See, our world is shaped by math. But the world did not create math. It is a product of the human mind. Interesting. In fact, the whole notion that there is nothing but nature, what's called naturalism, is an idea. Yet, it, to say that human knowledge is just a product of chemicals in, in the human brain... While true on one hand, but yet still seems to be so much more. Reason seems to have a power over, and that shapes the physical world in ways the physical world cannot shape it. What do you do with that? Last one, then we'll move on. The last thing I want you to consider are moral judgments. This idea of morality. See, humans naturally understand that some things ought to be done and others not. And you could chalk this up that... 
you know, that this is something else. But there's a, there's a concept of oughtness that, you know, and we have to ask, where does that oughtness come from? Why do, why do I have a deep feeling that I ought not do that? Right? Now, some might say it's herd instinct. Like, everybody, this is normal behavior for my group, my people. And so this is just kind of stepping out of my, my group's, like, natural, like, uh, moral code, if you will. And I get that. But you still all agree that there's some code to follow. That's odd. Why? Even if, even if these codes, like, you know, if you look around the world, you still see in different groups or tribes or peoples, you still see a code. And that code could vary. But there's an agreed upon thing that we have to have a code. Why is that? Even if these codes differ at the very, at the very like, certain points, minor points, if you will, they're all still generally the same as well. Like, they're, they're generally like, hey, you can't just marry anybody you want. You have to marry these, this person. Or this person is like your wife and this person is your husband, not, not just everybody, right? Or, hey, stealing things from me is going to have consequences. You know, how you deal with it might change. But there's still some kind of code. Where does such a moral oughtness come from? How does that, how does that fit into these things? And considering things, I, I just... I just want us to leave the door open. If that's, if that's you today, I want to leave the door open for the possibility of something beyond nature. And you can begin to kind of make sense of Acts 3. Because I think that's like a one roadblock. But the Bible's assumption from front to back is that beyond nature stands a creator God who may, has made everything from nothing. See, God created the universe and everything in it, not because he needed anything, but out of sheer joy and delight within himself. See, this God, as creator, understands how it all fits together. He understands, he understands it because it, it was his idea. Now, side note, we can understand it because we were created in his, his image. Interesting. If we look at this miracle, we must remember that this God, he didn't intend things to be this way. See, human rebellion has distorted everything down to the very last particle, making legs that don't work correctly a possibility. Yet, if you go back further in the story of the Bible, at the very beginning, you'll see this. This God spoke the world into existence. That's what the text says. This same God found it fitting to show his power on this day in Acts 3 through Peter by him speaking and setting things back to what he intended. Curious. If you have these categories of God speaking and creating and human rebellion, what the Bible calls sin and its effects on the world, such a miracle is not only plausible, it's probable. But it's because the supernatural God is beyond creation itself and sent someone to bring healing on his behalf. Yet many of us may, may not have kind of a hold up um, that, that this could happen. Maybe you're like, yeah, yes, I'm kind of here, I'm in, you know, I got you. But, well, we can, we can pro, uh, like, we can, if that's you, you can be wholesale miss the whole immensity of what's happened. You can mi miss the meaning, the significance of it, if you will. You see, as modern postmodern people, we have been trained to relegate accounts like this one from the world of science and fact to the world of fantasy and wishful thinking. Culturally, that is the land of what we called faith. These two worlds are allowed to coexist as long as they don't get in the way of each other. And as long as you dismiss the one when the other, when the other is needed. Here's what I mean. If a lame man really went, he really went from being unable to walk to leaping by the name of Jesus, something really has happened quite extraordinary. All right? If this event happened in, in the same world that you and I live in, and it did, then something has changed, and the future is far more wonderful than what we can imagine. See, it means that there is news to share, and that the God of this world intends to make some changes down the road. A crippled guy suddenly walking means that the message these guys, Peter and John, have, they have, that message they have to share are not just nice religious ideas for personal, individual lives, but for society and should change the landscape of all of life. See, a crippled man walking shows that his name changes everything. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't fit into private religious, you believe whatever you want categories. It confronts you with the reality itself. 
See, what these men are about to say isn't just religious shenanigans, if you will. It's for real people with real problems in a real world. And what they're about to share is factual and demands a response. You have to do with it. What they're about to say is either true or it's not. Either what they're about to say is going to change everything or it changes nothing. There is no in-between. There is no, no, this is true for you, but not for me. This is the name of Jesus. Just, it, it, this is the name of Jesus had the power to make a crippled man walk, or it didn't. Okay? May we recapture some of the wonder of a God who is there, and he's not silent. But before we kind of get to the announcement of what, what these men said, let's look at the people he was saying it to. Let's look at the audience. So we've talked about the act. Let's look at the audience. Verse 8 says this, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw with him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Picture the scene of these people. They're in the temple doing what they do, right? They're praying, they're buying something to make a sacrifice, maybe, and in comes Kramer from Seinfeld, and he's making a raucous, and he's loud, and he's noise singing. He's like, "What? You know, like what? What is, what is he doing, right?" And, and and then they turn around and they see who it is. It's the beautiful gate guy. And they go, "He's walking." Their annoyance immediately turned from one uh, from annoyance to wonder and awe. So maybe they do the, you know the eye rub and like, well, is "That really him?" You know, the double take. What happened? It's none other than a mouth-dropping account, occasion. It's like, what in the world? And then I love what he says next. He says to verse 11, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them. So imagine, they're just all kind of colliding in the portico called Solomon's. Right? Think of a column, columns, a porch kind of thing. And when Peter saw, saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel! Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? Well, here's a side note. You know, this is how you know something is different about Peter at this point. If you know anything about Bible, Peter is not always casting a great light. But you know something's changed about this man right here. Because he finally reads the room and was like, don't look at me like that. I didn't make him walk. Notice he brings out two assumptions that he thinks they're making about what he did. Because they, they, the look on their face, like, you know, he, he says, power or piety. It's not because I am powerful, and it's not because I am holy. It's important. Notice, Peter suddenly has a captive audience, but his first thought isn't self-aggrandizing. It's actually the opposite. Peter doesn't turn the audience away from what God is doing, but seeks the people's good by explaining what God is doing. Church, may that always be our posture by God's grace. May we think of ourselves less as we serve our great city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the way. But let's look at this audience. It's not random. They are right next to the temple area, okay? Peter addresses them as men of Israel, and then he gets even more specific about who these people actually are. It's not random Israelites. I think he like really looked in the crowd, and I think he saw some faces he remembered. Because in verse 13, he says this, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. See, Peter understands who he's with. <laughs> if you remember, Peter was there when Jesus was condemned by, Pilate, by the crowd. And so were some of these people, apparently. They, he's, I mean, he was like looking at me like, you were there? Yeah, hey man, you remember? You, you did this, right? They were the crowd, essentially. Peter didn't gloss over this fact. So Peter is quick, but Peter is quick to ground uh, the healing of this man to the God of Israel. It wasn't just any God that did this. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant God of Israel. It's like saying, pay attention, pay attention. The God whose temple, it's right there. That, that God, right there. This God has done something among you. And guess what? He did it through his servant, Jesus. Who is he? Oh, you remember him. You handed him over to Pilate. Remember? 
Remember, that's essentially what he's saying. See, Peter proceeds to ground everything he's about to say about Jesus in things that, that hold a lot of weight to them, including the temple. Peter tells them that, that Jesus serves the, God of, uh, the covenant God of Israel. They're like, okay. Peter tells them that Jesus was the one Moses spoke about. Moses, the giver of the law. That's, a, that's the biggest name drop he could have done, right? And he goes even further. He, he, even, he, says, he says, and you know what Moses said? Listen to him, or you'll, you'll be cut off from the people. Okay. See, even, he even name drops Samuel and all the other prophets and draws a direct line from the prophets to the people in front of him. You receive the prophets. You receive the covenant. All this to say is Peter demonstrates to a Jewish audience that the promises of God are coming true, and they find their fulfillment in Jesus himself. But now Peter finds himself another audience. You and I. See, we may not be next to the temple or Jewish for that matter, but here we stand asking what happened to this man. Who is this Jesus? Just like Peter said to this crowd, men and women of Norfolk, the God of this world has done something in Jesus. Let's hear what he has to say. Now let's look at the announcement. It says this. Peter's announcement, it kind of happens in like really three parts, okay? The first part, he he answers their assumption, their, their assumed question, which is, how did you get this man healed, right? How did this man, how did he get healed? Second question he asked, why, you know, kind of assumed here, was why was, why was this man healed? And the last question we see in his announcement is, um, what must we do in light of this man's healing? Okay, so the how, the why, and the what is essentially the message, the announcement he has. So let's cover the how. The next thing Peter says is astounding. Look at verse 14. He says this, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, have made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see what Peter is saying? How, the, how this man was healed was a person. Jesus healed the man. But let's look at how Peter describes Jesus. Look at that phrase, the holy and righteous one. If you remember, when Jesus stood before the crowd, Pilate, uh, the, the crowd and Pilate was trying to, he's trying to get Jesus off the hook, if you, if you remember back. And he gave the crowd an option of releasing Jesus or Barabbas, a known murderer. And he brings him up in here. But the crowd chose Barabbas. And in contrast to Barabbas, Jesus was holy. Jesus was righteous. See, Jesus lived a perfect life. He wasn't a sinner like you and me. He had never disobeyed God. He never failed in any moral type way. Jesus, he didn't deserve to die as a criminal like Barabbas because he never did anything wrong. And the crowd ultimately sentenced Jesus to death because they were angry with his claims and the leaders of, of the Jewish community were jealous of people following, following Jesus. But look at the next phrase he uses, the author of life. Notice, Peter tells the crowd, you killed not Jesus, not a good man, the author of life. Wow. What? How is that possible? Who is this Jesus? That's what I would have been. I would have been that guy. I'm like, what? You just say what I think he said? Texts like these are why the church over the following years, right after this, had to affirm all that the New Testament teaches about Jesus. See, what, what we can grasp from, from a, a reflection over the text for generations is that Jesus is fully human, just like you and me, but he's more than that. He is, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the, the Christ, the chosen one, but he is also fully God. The technical way to say this is that so Jesus is fully human, fully God. What this means is that he has two natures, but yet he is one person. See, Jesus is the author of life. Now keep in mind, Peter understands that God created the world and everything in it, all of life, started with God. And he attributes this to Jesus, making him God. Okay? This is definitely like, in Peter's mind, Jesus is God. Okay? Yet the next thing he says is puzzling, if we're honest. He says, whom God raised from the dead. Whoa, 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 whoa. Is Jesus God or did God raise him from the dead? And the answer is yes. But we'll get into why that in a minute. Some might say, so, 
is, and you're trying to think through this. So is Jesus just the first created being that God used to create everything else? Now, while I can see and understand why someone might think that at first based on this text, kind of like Jehovah's Witness teaches, but the problem is, is Jesus is taught to be worshipped throughout the whole New Testament. And guess what? Keep in mind, this is all in the context of the covenant God of Israel, and to worship anything other than God is the highest violation of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship no other god, right? So it's not that Jesus is the first created being. He is the author of life in the sense that he was there in the beginning before there was anything. Jesus is the creator God. How can that be? God, God raised him from the dead. This is why. As Tanner kind of mentioned in our first sermon um, of the series, that the, the Trinity is found all over Acts. As a way of reminder, here's a simple way to kind of remember the Trinity. Trinity in just three statements. Here it is. God is one. God is three. Each is God. Let's go through those real fast. God is one. There is only one God taught everywhere from the Bible. There are not three gods, but one. The next thing we have to we extrapolate from the, the Bible is that God is three. God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The New Testament speaks of all three being different persons. It's not that one moment God is the Father, and then the next moment God is the Son. This is called modalism. It means that God is in different modes, and it's not true. It's incorrect. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father and not the Son. Yet all three have personalities. Head spinning. The last, last phrase, each is God. Each person is fully God in essence and substance. It's, it's not that the persons are pieces of God, but are completely God in what it means to be God. Whatever it means to be God, they all are. Okay? That's the layman's term way of saying it. If it seems difficult to kind of wrap our minds kind of around that idea of Trinity, that God is one, three, and, and each being God, rest assured it's okay because there's nothing in all the universe that's actually like God. So it actually shouldn't surprise you that there would be, something, there would be nothing to compare God with. In fact, the word actually says you are incomparable to anything else. So when, as we peer into the very person of God, we should find mystery. Um, the person of Jesus essentially forces us to deal with this reality. The God of the Bible is the Trinitarian God, one God that is three distinct persons. Now, Jesus. All that to say, Jesus is fully God and fully man. You see, there, are, there was a bigger miracle than the, the healing of the man um, at this place here. There, there's more than one miracle at play. One writer called this the grand miracle. It's in the person of Jesus. See, God the Son took on humanity. Another way to say that is that God became a man. The theological term for this is called the incarnation. This idea of incarnate, which means God in the flesh. See, Peter is announcing to this crowd that God came in the flesh and you killed him. Uh-oh. You didn't just oppose the God whose temple is right over there, right? In some way, you killed him. That's, that's rough. See, this means that the crowd killed Jesus, but God the Father raised him from the dead. The God-man died, but he didn't stay dead. Because Jesus, uh, because death is rather, is the punishment for sin, and Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. He was guilty of nothing. See, Peter tells them that although they had, just, they, they had Jesus killed, he's alive right now. Notice that. You killed him, but hey, he's alive. He's alive. Uh, Peter saw him and he talked to him. He says that we are witnesses of these things. So Jesus is fully human and fully God. Jesus died on a cross, but he's alive right now. That's important. See, three, these three facts make what Peter says next possible. The man was healed by faith in Jesus' name. But there's a nuance here in the language. It's faith in Jesus and through Jesus. I don't know if you caught that. Verse 16, go there. And his name, by faith in in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. The faith being talked about here is actually not the lame man's faith. Get that straight. It's Peter's. Notice that. Peter had faith, or what we call trust, in the name of Jesus. Peter trusted that Jesus could make the man well. But it was faith in Jesus 
It was, it, it, but it was faith in Jesus. It was faith that is through Jesus as well. And this last point is so important. Don't miss it. It would be nice to think that we can just muster up faith on our own to see healings come about. But we cannot. The faith that makes, made this man well was from Jesus as well. See, Jesus put faith in the Peter to reach out his hand to this man and say, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. It was Peter's confidence, trust in Jesus that healed this man. But it was Jesus through the Holy Spirit that gave Peter such faith. Based on what, he, what Peter's own admission is, it's not my power. It's not my holiness. Those came from without. But side note. Another thing we need to address, this is not name it, claim it. You cannot just name something in faith and claim that it's going to happen because you want it to. See, God is not a genie at your beck and call. He's not a genie. Yet if God wants to heal the sick person in front of you, he can and he will. The same thing, some some things are just unique, like they're going on in this thing. I don't want us to get confused that, you know, that... This is not a possibility, but this right here is a purposeful demonstration of the power of God. It's not just a name it, claim it situation. See, this leads us to the why. This man was healed. So why, why have you stopped and thought about that? Okay, they pass him for years. They're all there. Why, why was this man healed? Like, why this guy? See, this man was there every day, and I'm sure Peter and John passed him before. This just, it just seems too, like, yeah, he's there every day. You, you definitely you definitely passed him. This man suffered for years. From birth, this man had had to deal with this ailment. Yet in the latter years of his life, we find out that God had a plan for this man. All those years, years, had led to this one moment. This wasn't just some random encounter as if it looked to everyone else. In the mystery of God's ways, this was a pivotal moment that God had orchestrated from the beginning. See, much like the encounter Jesus had with the, the crowd in Mark, uh, if you remember the healing of the man who was lowered on the mat um, into, the, into the house, um, he pointed, um, the healing of this man was pointed to the power of Jesus and the claims of Jesus. See, the healing gave opportunity for the crowd to listen to what the witnesses and the messengers of Jesus were going to say. If you remember in Mark, he lowers the thing and he says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, so that you might know that I can forgive sins. Hey, get up and walk. Take your mat and go home. And he did. Same thing. Actually, same, same miracle. But that is what, what's happening here. The healing of this man alleviated his suffering, yes. But it served a greater purpose of drawing attention to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And ultimately, their salvation from sin. If Jesus can make this man walk, he can forgive your, you of your sins. Just like in Mark, right? Yet there's something else, and don't miss this. There's something else that, that his healing points us to. The world to come. Look at verse 21. It says this, Jesus, comma, whom heaven must receive until the, the time of restoring all things about God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. A, ma- a lame man's legs, notice the restoring of all things there. A, ma- a lame man's legs being healed point to a world where God will restore all things. I don't know about you. I don't know everybody's background in here and what you've been told, but a, a day is coming when Jesus comes back, and he will make all things new. And it will be a place where there is no lameness. Everybody walks in his kingdom. So, like, I was reflecting on this, and I was like, man, this reminds me of a friend that I have in uh, Tampa, Florida, and he's a follower of Jesus, and he's much like this man, he has a leg ailment, right? I'll try, to, I'll try to do this without crying. This man, my friend, he's limped all his life. He's never getting better. It's a defect. It's a, it's a thing that he, he bears. He's never leapt. He's never run. He can't. By God's grace, he gets around, and the Lord has provided him so many ways. But if you really take to heart, what this means is that in the kingdom, one day, he will walk. He will leap, just like this man. He may not do it today, but he will that day. This miracle points us to what Jesus ultimately is going to do. See, miracles excuse me, are signs of the coming kingdom. And this kingdom isn't just a spiritual kingdom. It's a physical kingdom of flesh and blood. See, Jesus is going to make this world new. 
So what must we do, lastly? What must we do? The last part of the announcement is what Peter was leading up to all along. He says in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that is, his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Peter calls the crowd to repent. Turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. You see, in the Jewish mind, in the framework here, is that there is this book that lists everything you did wrong. A book of your sins. And these are reasons God can justly condemn you to death. And whether it's an actual book, I don't know. But that's kind of the the metaphor here, the, the analogy. But the good news of Jesus is that you can turn from being an enemy of God and turn to Jesus who can blot out every last one of those things listed in the book. Your record can be wiped clean. You see, Jesus knows everything that you have done wrong, and he went and died in your place anyway. You can be fully known and fully loved by God through Jesus. But in order for this to happen, we got to turn back. From what exactly he tells us in verse 26, he says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from wickedness. See, the sad truth is that many years ago, our first parents disobeyed God by eating a fruit in a garden. He told them not to. They did it anyway. They were deceived, but yes, they still did it. This was the beginning of what we call human rebellion or sin. And as a result of all these, all people since then have been cut off from God, alienated from him. And we deserve death for our disobedience. And we desire things that oppose God even. It's not that we just disobey. We want to disobey, Right? So much so, it led this people to kill God himself. That is the human heart. Even though you and I were not there, we are capable of the same thing. Our only hope is to turn from our wickedness. Our wickedness is anything we think, say, or do that does not trust, love, or honor God. This is ultimately what is wrong with the world. And all things on our list of sins spring from a natural disposition and desire towards rebellion towards doing life our way. See, this turning of what's called, what we call repentance is what the word, one of the words he uses here, means turning away from sin and, ter- and self towards Jesus. But repentance is not merely giving up or surrendering, if you will. In other words, repentance isn't becoming a prisoner of war, if you could think of it that way. It's not like, okay, okay. You know, tie me up, take me away. It's actually more like joining the other side. See, repentance is leaving one kingdom and its king and switching allegiance to a different king and his king, right? It's not that we are at, we're asked to give up, but rather we are to stop trusting in one thing and trust Jesus. Yet the power to do so comes from Jesus himself, much like this miracle. See, this Jesus is the same one that made this lame man walk. He's good and powerful and has a plan to make all things new. Would you trust him, though? Would you trust him today? Have you trusted him? Would you change your allegiance from whatever you have built your life on and trust yourself to him? You're not just a giving up, but a changing sides, right, by his power. See, you can, do as, you can do so by admitting that you're a sinner in need of a savior. You can ask Jesus to save you from your sins. If he can make a lame man walk, he can save you from the judgment of your sins. There's no religious acts, no good deeds No trying hard enough that can justify you for God. It's only going to be through Jesus himself. It's it's Jesus in your place or it's nothing. But see, look at this. The signs of the kingdom. The point of most miracles in the Bible as we think about navigating this is to show God's character and his nature. That's what this miracle pushes us to consider. Will we trust this God? Miracles also point to what the coming kingdom is like. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you may be wondering, hey, man, can I, can I make someone walk today? Right? I think it's the wrong question. I think the right question is this. Can God use me to make someone walk today? And the answer is yes, he can. Why doesn't he? No idea. That's his business. Uh, yet God can do whatever he pleases to do. There was something unique about the apostles. So I don't want us to get misled here into thinking um, there wasn't. But the period in Acts is unique. It is. However, this is the same God. And he's active today. Because Jesus is alive, he can still do the same amazing things. To lose hope that Jesus can still do the miraculous in our midst is to lose hope in a new world. 
It is. We should beg God for signs in the kingdom to come. But the interesting thing, and I don't want to oversell it here, the interesting thing about this man who was lame but now walks is this. He still died. He still died. You see, he, was, he still has to be raised from the dead one day. See, his lameness was healed, which is amazing. But we still have to wait for the new world, for death and everything broken about this world to be fixed. We do. It's kind of like this. There's a, 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 a series from uh, Disney that... Uh, that just came out with Star Wars. I like Star Wars. Uh, Disney Plus. Uh, it's this show called uh, uh, Ahsoka. And, uh, and they've been anticipating it for like two years. <laughs> like seriously. So there'd be like a sneak peek here, a sneak peek there. And then there's like this trailer and you're like, ooh, that's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Miracles are kind of like sneak peeks. They're kind of like trailers to the real thing coming. Here's the thing. We look at the sneak peek and we go, yeah, I want that to happen. I want to see that thing. Um, the reason why you hunger for more miracles is not bad. It's because you want the coming kingdom. You want things to be made as they should be. There's an oughtness in us. It's not as it was supposed to be. It's not. My friend cannot walk without a limp. This man was paralyzed. He, w- he could not walk, but he was made well. That's, that's what's coming. This is the this is going to be good, right? The miracles are a sneak peek. Yet even now, we should ask for signs of the kingdom because the kingdom in part has come upon us now. See, Jesus is not going to be king one day. He's king right now. Jesus is king now, and this is his world. The kingdom has come in him in his first coming. It is now here in the spirits and dwelling, but it's also still yet to come, right? So Christians... Miracles like these should not be a source of embarrassment to hide, okay? It shouldn't be a thing to hide and be embarrassed about. But they, they do raise many questions, and I, I admit that, yes. But they are signs to be explained and shared. Jesus, or excuse me, just because we have not seen something like this does not mean that they're impossible. That would be a false statement. They, the very nature of a miracle is that it's not normal, right? So you should expect, yeah, that this is the world we... We live in, right? A world with supernatural possibilities. Does this capture your imagination? If a lame man can walk now, the world as we know it is over. It's over, right? What might God do in and through us in our great city of Norfolk? What might he do? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God that cares. You see our pain and the brokenness of the world. You are not unaware. You see and you know. Father, thank you for setting into motion the renewal of all things through Jesus the Son. Father, thank you for this demonstration of your power to make the lame walk. Father, would you bring such signs of your kingdom to the hurting and broken of this city? Would you bring the renewal that is only possible through Jesus? Father, please empower us with your spirit to bring signs of the kingdom here and now. But Father, we know that the greatest thing that they need is they need to, be, they need to have new hearts so that they might walk in a coming kingdom. And so, God, I pray that um, you would just use us um, and however you see fit. Spirit, would you empower us, um, even in supernatural ways. God, we love you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.